We're live every Wednesday around 7 p.m. Sorry, it's about 7.06, 7.07. Took me a minute to get set up with the tripod. I actually had the cleaners come today and uh, they cleaned not only upstairs, but they cleaned the basement as well. And so when they did, they cleaned off my desk and made the bed behind me. But when they cleaned off this desk here, my tripod got all messed up. I don't even know if the settings are right on this thing. Let's, let's mess around with it and see if those change at all. Ooh. Um, yeah, so sorry about that. Uh, today, if you have any questions, just put them in the, the bottom. I know I give it a minute or two for people to get the notification and jump on, uh, but anything you have related to finance, real estate, whatever, uh, I'm your, your guy at personal finance and real estate. So I don't have any scheduled content for today. Some days I do. Um, today, I'm just going to riff right off whatever questions you guys have. I've been extremely busy as of late with consolidating and locking in a lot of the gains we've had this year. So a lot of my properties have appreciated a ton. We've had, you know, in the last six months even, we've had a huge amount of appreciation in my area. And so that's been fantastic um, from a wealth building perspective, right? I've been extremely lucky to have bought property in London and basically like wherever you've bought property in Southwestern Ontario. Um, hey guys, good to see you jumping on. Hey, Dihadu, Mr. Khan, how you doing? Um, but it's just been one of those things where we've just been super blessed. You know, I, I bought smart and when I bought smart, let's say I bought a property for an example of like one we just are doing this week. It's a, uh, non-conforming, non-legal duplex, but, uh, basically a semi-property I bought for $169,000 in, I don't know, 2017. So 169 grand. And it was a good buy then. Like it was probably worth 200 grand when I bought it. And, uh, it's one of those things where. You know, so I bought it and I made 31 grand when I bought it. And that was great. Like to buy something below market value, that's the goal, right? I got my down payment, you know, 20% down. That was basically a full burr when I bought it. But now I just kind of reappraised for 425, 425,000 on a crappy little semi, semi-detached property in London, Ontario. And I'm like, geez, I'm reevaluing my net worth. And I'm like, I'm watching my, the curve of my net worth and this, every time I realize there's been this much appreciation, it spikes. Or every time I track the fact that I bought a bunch of new properties and unlock the value, I'll recalculate my net worth and then it'll it'll jump. And I don't do it like I used to. I used to track it you know, obsessively. Now I do it maybe once a quarter. You know, when something big happens in my life, I'll, I'll reevaluate things. But um, yeah. Yeah, feel free to ask any questions. I'll get them all in a sec. Wow, Brandon says, building furniture and looking for some nuggets. Wow. If you want some nuggets there, uh, Brandini, you gotta you gotta ask for them. You gotta pull them out of me. They don't just they don't just fall. Well, sometimes they do fall out of my mouth. Um, <laughs> but you just gotta point me in the right direction and say, you know, shoot. Um, but yeah, so just having a great great couple of weeks here, getting things refinanced, um, pulling out the equity in a lot of properties, and uh, <laughs> be honest, and uh, yeah, just just putting it all to work. And I'm excited for 2021. I got some big goals to change my strategy and how I invest in real estate in 2021. I'm gonna bring in stock hacking. So I'll be sharing and talking more in the channel about personal finance, um, more so related to the stock portfolio as opposed to personal finance related to real estate. So I'll still talk about real estate, but I just won't be as heavily focused on it as I was this year. This year was all about real estate. And it's just one of those things where I, I want to have a shift. I, I've been heavy on real estate for too long. And so well, there's an opportunity where I can pull out, you know, 80% loan to value on a property and I've got a 
couple hundred thousand, I can move that into, you know, stock investments, into, you know, lending, into different avenues, options trading potentially for a little bit of the active portion, but um, just, just diversifying. And so I'm really excited to be blessed to say, hey, I couldn't control the appreciation, but I can control when I sell. So I've been selling off a lot of properties this year. You guys know I've been you know, pulling equity out and cashing in when things are good. I did the exact same thing in 2018 when things were really good. Of course, you know, I've had a crystal ball. I would have waited till now, but when there's gains, take some money off the table, right? And say, okay, I've been successful. I've been somewhat fortunate. Maybe it's luck. Maybe it's probably a combination of luck. And, you know, it takes a lot of effort. I'm not going to say it was all luck. It took a lot of work to buy these properties off market, to renovate them, you know, stuff on market to do all the renovations, you know, it's a lot of work being a landlord, right? So probably I made a lot more money being a property investor than I did a landlord. Landlording really, you know, I focus on cash flow, but cash flow hasn't really been the primary driver of my net worth. It's been buying properties under market value and realizing that wealth. And then another other half of my net worth has been just from uh, owning properties, levering up, you know, putting 20% down, getting someone else to put 80% down, and then appreciation carrying things, right? In a huge, huge way. If I had bought in cash, I wouldn't have made near as much as a return as I did levering up. So I levered up and then I knew there was gonna be appreciation, but it was better than I expected. And that's what every investor hopes for. And that's how the stock market's been the last 10 years too. So there is a for, there is an element of being able to, to capture the wealth and being able to say, hey, you know, there are gonna be people who are gonna message on here and be like, Mike, you just got lucky. And I'm like, well, where's your 50 properties? Why weren't you lucky with me? Why aren't you, why you continue to be lucky with me? I, I continue to be lucky. You know, I keep finding market off market deals. I keep renovating them and adding value. I keep doing it again and again and again. And if it's luck, like join me, right? Um, okay, now I'm gonna get into the Q&A. It looks like there's some popping up and I give you guys a good three to five minute head start. And then usually I just play catch up the whole time. So that's what I've been up to. We get some refinances, been enjoying time with family. I got the third one on the way. So three kids and, and a dog's keeping me busy and, and the mentees are all doing well. So it's just been, it's been a blessing this year. It's been good. I wished there wasn't this COVID, COVID-19 thing going on where I couldn't travel because right now I would be either in Arizona, Florida. Um, Jonas is popping off too. Wow, Jonas, trying to get some attention, trying to get some call out here. He's like the, uh, he's like the youngest child, you know, the middle child, the one everyone ignores, you know, fake news. How you enjoy my guest room? This is this is uh, my official uh, YouTube studio right now, brother. Cause zero zero rent for it. <laughs> uh, uh, the rest of the rest of the time, though, exactly. <laughs> yeah, nice. The rest of the time, it just sits empty. To be honest, it collects dust. So we send a cleaner in to to clean it because it collects dust. And it's only used once a week for about an hour. Uh, we got some we got some Jonas's art there. You can see it sitting on top of the bed. Um, <laughs> people were like, Hey, it's, it's uh, you know, a bit echoey in here. So I tried to institute, you know, tried to get some, uh, some things to absorb the, the canopies there, absorb a little bit of sound. <laughs> Someone just commented Biden for prison, Trump for 2020. One thing I will, we'll just speak on that. You know, that offlandish comment got me thinking like it always does when people say things. Um, <laughs> The USD to Canadian currency, if you guys are watching the currency right now, they, ever since the election, we, we so, and during COVID, we saw at one point during like the oil, little bit of oil crisis, we saw, um, it was like 149 to 150 um, conversion rate. Right now it's like 127 something, right? So we've seen a 23% move in currency, we're at an all time three year low 
if you have Canadian dollars right now and you want to buy USD, now is a pretty good time. And it's actually trending downward right now. I don't know what the future holds. We actually saw a bit of a bit of a recovery today. So it's around 128 today. It's obviously, it's going to be that's the middle ground. So if you're putting in a bid, trying to sell a bunch of currency, it might be a little bit uh, a little bit lower. But uh, yeah, it's one of those things where, uh, geez, I mean. It's crazy how far we've come and how, how crazy things have gone in the last little bit and how destabilized a lot of things are right now and how inflated a lot of things are right now, how scary it is to be in cash right now. Um, as an asset class, you know, currency is scary right now. I would much rather have a pile of you know, ownership and companies or a pile of real estate or something like that that can rise with the tides and, and avoid any hyperinflation than I would holding cash right now. That said, like, this could be a signal for if interest rates ever come up because money is free right now. But if interest rates ever came up, there could be opportunities, right? There always is a, an opportunity somewhere for someone. You got to know which industry to look in, right? It might be travel and tourism right now. It's going to come back when the vaccine, you know, for COVID nineteen comes out. That might have major impacts on that industry. It might boom again, right? So you can invest in that or whatever, like, you know, there's a lot of industries that were affected by COVID, look to those and maybe there's an opportunity there if you have cash, but I would put cash to work right now. Um, and I'm a huge hypocrite because I have like seven figures in cash right now, but I'm planning to put it to work soon. So um, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> I, I've made a lot of mistakes, I'm not perfect. I'm trying to share with you guys all the mistakes so I can you know, pass on that wisdom, all those failures that I've made so you don't make the same failures. There are people who are much more successful than I am, so again, Talk to your professional when you're thinking about investing in various asset classes. And speak to your accountant before I answer this next question from Chris. Chris says, should we incorporate to buy properties? Currently have two properties, but looking to scale down to scale to 25 plus doors. Okay, so you're looking to scale 25 plus doors, which might not be that many properties really. Like if you're buying a couple of sixplexes and a few duplexes, you're at like 25 plus doors. So it could be a matter of five to 10 properties and you're at 25 doors. So I don't like to use the word doors. Um, I prefer number of properties or asset value, total asset value is my preference. Um, and then total amount of cash flow is my preference. When I'm trying to make that decision, it's not about number of doors. It's about the size of the portfolio because you could buy, a door could be a $30,000 trailer, um, could be a $50,000 cottage. It could also be a $2 million house in Vancouver, it counts as one door. So it depends on you know, what, what asset you're dealing with when we try to answer that question. But the general guideline or rule of thumb is, in my mind, when I'm trying to decide if I'm gonna incorporate or not. Now I incorporate now because for the most part because it makes sense from a tax perspective. When you get to that maximum, so basically the way of thinking about this, you get to the maximum tax bracket. And once you're in that maximum tax bracket, personally, so we're talking you have 200,000 or more personal income is roughly the threshold, it's a little bit higher than that to get the top, top bracket. There's one, you know, like a 250,000, a little bit higher bracket. I have to double check on that. I haven't even been following lately, but approximately. So let's say you're around 200, $250,000. You're around the maximum tax bracket personally. You're taxed the exact same way in a court, but the top marginal brackets. There are no tax advantages to moving passive assets like real estate. They are not active. Now, if you had a huge company Let's say you have a thousand units, we have a different conversation. You have a full staff. It's now an active business. It's not gonna be taxed. It's gonna be taxed at a small business rate in Canada. I get that. It's gonna be eligible for the gross up tax credits in most cases. But let's just say you're doing it as a holding co and you're gonna buy properties in a hold co. It's gonna get no tax advantage at all. It's gonna be the top marginal bracket. So there is, 
if you right now make 30, 40, $50,000 a year, there are huge disadvantages to putting property inside of a corp. You will be taxed higher inside of the corp at the 54% tax bracket. You're gonna get some advantages though if you're at the same tax bracket. If those advantages are greater than the fees and the headaches to keep things alive and the higher interest costs to keep things alive inside of the corp, it can make sense. So let's say you're at that top marginal bracket. And you're like, ah, the taxes, I'm already making so much that it makes sense to put it into corp because at least I have the flexibility to choose when I pull in a dividend and from that corp. So you can have some control over when you get the income. You're still gonna pay the max tax. You're still gonna, you know, after you have dividend to yourself, you're gonna be at the top marginal bracket. So there's gonna be no advantages. And I'm gonna talk in a second about some other strategies as well, because when I say the type of asset class, if you're buying stuff that needs a lot of renovation, you could have losses in your first and second and third year owning the property. Say you're turning tenants over, you got some vacancy when they leave, then they've destroyed the unit, you gotta fix it up, whatever. There's no cash flow during that whole period because you're renovating it. So you have huge losses in many cases and a lot of maintenance stuff when you buy properties that are distressed and turned down. I've had properties that took two, three years before they were positive cash flow. Now they're 1% rural properties, but I had to fight to get tenants out. So I'm gonna get no rent, tenants aren't paying. Uh, then it's vacant, then I'm fighting the city, get permits done, whatever. And then we're actually getting the work done, et cetera. Then we go get rented out. That whole process in a 12, a six unit or a triplex or whatever can take a long time, it can take a year or more. And so it could be spread over two tax years. We have losses and those losses are fantastic for offsetting your day job. You make 60 grand a year, you can actually pay no tax at all because you buy some real estate and it offsets all your day job income. For a time, I had real estate offsetting my day job income. So thumbs up like for that. That's, a, again, there's just, it's when you talk to an accountant about your situation and you need to explain, you know, what you're trying to do with your real estate portfolio. Most accountants might hear what you're saying and say to you, okay, well, you know, buy real estate, it doesn't matter, put it in a corp or whatever. And they're not thinking, the, the accountant isn't thinking from the mindset of the financing. They aren't thinking, oh, hey, it's gonna be like, if you buy the property personally, you get a 1.6 five-year variable right now, but if you buy it in a corp, it might be two and a half percent. 3%, you might have to use a different lender, an alt lender. It might be harder to borrow in that corp. You might get a worse loan to value in that corp versus buying it personally. Now there are exceptions to the rule. There are ways you can buy inside of a corp using, for instance, CIBC, where you can buy within a corp and personally guarantee it and get a personal 2% you know, residential mortgage. But again, you can do a little bit better in your personal name, even, even better than the CIBC program. So there, there are advantages from a financing cost perspective and an amount you gotta put down perspective to buy personally. So there, I'd say your first five, 10 properties, 25 doors, whatever, depends on the size of the portfolio, that should probably be in your personal name and ideally split between you and your spouse. So you each buy that many properties if you can both qualify. And that's a fantastic way to get, you get 10 mortgages, right, in your personal name with both, uh, you know, yourself and your spouse. So there's 20 properties before I even look into the corp. Get a good insurance policy to protect yourself liability-wise. The corp doesn't provide any additional liability, not really. Um, you can pierce the corporate bill pretty easily. And to be honest, a good insurance policy protects you just the same. So liability wise, not much difference between the person, the personal and the corp. If you're planning to do burr projects where there's gonna be big losses and you're not planning to sell for a long time, you won't get any gain on a, if you refinance a property, let's you know, buy it for 200, refinance it at 400, have a huge uh, refinance. That refinance is tax-free. If it's inside your corp, how do you get that money, that refinance money from your corp to your personal hands? That's a whole discussion you have to have. If that property is in your personal name and you don't plan to sell it, you get that money out tax-free. It's in your hands right now in your personal name. You can do whatever you want with it, tax-free. So there are advantages to holding in your personal name uh, as well as the offsets in your day job. So I, I believe most investors in every situation is different. Some people have weird wonky situations where a court makes sense from day one. 
Just remember, setting up a corp costs thousands of dollars. Just remember, you gotta do a yearly minutes. You gotta keep a minute book. You gotta, there's a lot of administrative headaches that go along with keeping a corp alive. And you gotta do an annual tax return. There's just more to it that you don't have to do if you just buy the property personally. So you save yourself a lot of headache, thousands of dollars in administrative cost, et cetera, so forth. So even if they were equal in both scenarios, I would definitely say go with the personal route. So there has to be some advantage to going within the corp. And so certain factors have to fall into place for that situation to come to fruition. So that's my sort of high level thoughts. I've answered the question before, uh, but I did it pretty eloquently there. I, you know, I got to pat myself on the back. That was, that was probably one of my better thought out responses to that question. Next question, Octavia Rodriguez. And by the way, I only have nine thumbs up right now. If anyone got value from that nugget talking about, you know, owning properties in personal name versus in corp and some of the advantages from a tax perspective, I need to see a thumbs up there. Like, let's get some appreciation for when I do a good job here. I need, like, you know when you, you finish, there we go, we got three, four likes just smashed in there. Uh, you know, it's like when you finish on stage and you give them a good speech and you worked hard on it and people are like, yay, and they clap. That's, that's why, that's the rush you get after you go through all the nerve wracking energy to get up there and get on stage. That's the reward, the clap. And because I'm talking in a room by myself, the blank wall behind me to a camera, uh, the only reaction I get is when you guys jump in the comments and hit that thumbs up button. So I know you're, you're quietly, uh, oh, wow, oh, wow, Jonas. He's active today. He's trying to give me that, that black thumb up my butt. This guy. This guy trying to be trying to be sexual right now. Do you use OP, your own money or do you incorporate OPM? So the answer is it depends. When I started investing Octavia in in real estate, um, I used only my own money. I didn't. Uh, well, that's not true. I guess some people consider OPM or other people's money. And by the way, thank you for the twelve likes that just came in. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, you know, some people when they start off, they call OPM using bank financing. I don't really, I guess technically that is other people's money to buy real estate. So if you used a mortgage to buy a property, you'd be using OPM. Uh, but there's varying degrees of OPM or other people's money. And I think that most real estate investors use OPM. Almost every real estate investor uses OPM to a degree. Now there's degrees of, like I said, there's degrees of usage of OPM. Have I used other people's money for down payment? Yes. Have I used unsecured lines of credits for down payments or even to buy whole properties? Yes. Um, do I do a ton of that? Yes. Have I bought properties where I brought a money partner in and they bought the property and I was just there bringing the deal together, right? And doing the active management. Yeah, I did dozens of those, right? That was my bread and butter in 2018, 2019. Um, well, I, I did a good split, but I did a lot of them anyway in 2019. So um, yeah, in 2020, I do some deals like that. I do a mix, right? It can make sense where someone else brings the money to the table and I bring the deal or I bring the, the experience or whatever, right? Like, it just depends on, on each situation. Each situation is totally different and it can make sense to, to bring the money in sometimes too. I've bought a lot of properties in the last year where I put the money out myself and I've done deals where I've been the money partner, where I've fronted the entire purchase price for mentees and they provide the active management. In most cases, I actually provide the deal and the money. Um, so I did like two thirds in some cases. It just depended on the situation, but that's why my skill suits is, has been fun. What does that even mean? It's just spinning. I've never had this happen before, but it says I'm connected. The timer is still going, but my screen has a spinny thing going. Can anyone just comment and tell me if they can still see me in the chat? I don't see any chats popping up. I don't know. Is it, you guys can see me or not? I don't know, it just glitched out. This is what happens when you want to is uh, draining all the internet, you know? My kid's upstairs probably on Netflix. Everyone's just sucking the internet dry, and I'm stuck with the crappiest bell package. 
I'm so sick about it. I was actually biking today to the bank and I was biking back and I saw like two bell technicians working on boxes. And I'm like, geez, these guys really have a problem with their network. But they have all these people here just working on the, just in there screwing up the boxes trying to fix stuff. Although that might mean that they're gonna fix the internet. So fingers crossed that they fix their home internets in the area. Andrew, how you doing? Um, and then how do you use your own money? So. Um, I guess Octavia kind of to go to the next level, like when do you decide whether it's OPM or, or um, I guess to finish off the question, OPM or to use your own money. I was a big fan when I started in this journey of just working hard full time, Lisa and I both work full time and just saving everything, super frugal, never eating out, just house hacking, you know, biking to work. I was like saving everywhere I could, every dollar I could. If I found a dollar on the ground and I had to bike a kilometer to get it, I'd go get it, get the dollar. So I was all about just saving everything I possibly could. And we invested all of my money into down payments for properties. So that's how I got started. It was just hardcore frugality, hardcore work ethic, and then just saving everything, very, very little uh, spending. And then it was like, uh... <laughs> wow, what's going on right now? This guy thinks he's a, so Jimmy's on in the comments there is Joe. And he's just, if you guys follow him on Instagram, he's something like a cycling investor, right? And I, I did a poke today. I was biking in December. I biked to the bank today. And uh, I bike you know, pretty much year-round unless it's freezing out, right? Just because I'm not a, not a little bitch. I'm a real man. And real men bike you know, all the time. They realize it's, uh, if you're within two, three kilometers drive, then you might as well, uh, you might as well cycle. So, uh, yeah. I, uh... <laughs> anyway, I'm not going to get into that one anyway. A real, a real investor... Uh, you know, I want to see Jimmy bike in the cold right now. It's my house. That's, uh, that's what a real investor would do. Is it possible to acquire personally and change that to a company name? So Mr. Khan, yes. Um, you could acquire a property. Well, okay. The way you set it up is you'd have your lawyer do a bare trust agreement. You could buy inside of a corp and do a bare trust agreement and say your personal name. And so if you want to transfer that property out of your corp to your personal name, you'd have almost no tax. You'd have a freeze, right? So there'd be no tax complicated no tax complications there would be no land transfer tax when you sold it so there'd be there are ways you can hold property in trust you have someone else like your aunt buy a property and hold it in trust for you if you guys ever follow um some of the people who appear in the newspaper there was this girl that bought property at 16 there's this guy in my my town that bought property on 15 16 um and they made headlines that they bought property under age 18 and at first i looked at it i'm like what who's buying property under 18 you can't own real estate or any stock under the age of 18 how, how are they doing this and I looked and I realized that they weren't actually buying anything. Their parents were buying it. And it was held in a bare trust agreement for the child um, or the minor until they turn of age. And then they can do a, a transfer uh, with little tax application, like land transfer tax, et cetera. But there still is obviously a fee to change title from parent to child. But you can do the same as an adult. You could buy a property in, in trust. I actually plan to do that this year where it makes sense to, um, to get a property renovated. And then we're gonna trade it over at max value and uh, get a full, full blur. Right, and in order to induce a full burr, we're gonna do a trust agreement, transfer it into into the mentee, into Jonas's name. So we'll probably do a trust agreement, a bare trust agreement, to save the tax implications. Uh, so that's something that, as an advanced investor, I had no idea. Like I thought that if I wanted to move a property, you know, from one person to another, there's be all this land transfer tax and blah blah stuff and the, all this huge tax implication. But if you structure it properly at the start, you can do a bare trust agreement, and someone can buy another property for someone else, legally speaking and then flow through the income or whatever else. So there's lots of creative ways you can you can do things with trust, bare trust agreements that I had no idea about when I started investing in real estate. 
there's some nuggets for you. This one um, from TV Naguyan. Um, it says, good evening, Mike. First time joining. And then it, it looks like it's pasted from another chat. So I can't, can't see all of it. Something live stream value. Found your channel recently. So I think the words that I can see there, it looks like a positive comment. Thank you for the positive uh, feedback. Really appreciate that. Welcome to the live stream. Sadak says, can I make a living flipping properties with two of my friends? Sadak, you could totally make a living flipping properties with your friends. I would think that having two other friends, so having three people on a deal flipping properties means you need to flip three times as much volume. Um, so just like one flip by yourself is the same as doing three with them, right? Assuming you're doing a, again, I, I just made a huge assumption. I assumed that you were splitting the profit uh, a third, a third, a third, because I don't know why I made that assumption. It's very likely you could have a money partner that's getting half of the thing and then the other two friends are working together, doing all the work and someone's finding the deal, someone's doing the work. I don't know. I don't know how you've set it up. So it depends. If you're flying the money and the deals, maybe you're getting like two thirds and they're getting, those other two guys are splitting the third. I don't know. So it depends on how you structured it. But uh, I would say that more people creates more complication. I like to have one business partner as opposed to two or three. That I can just see there being issues with having three people flipping. Unless of course, like maybe one of them's like a realtor and that's their thing. They're good at finding deals. Maybe the other guy's got a bunch of money and a rich uncle and he's the money partner. And maybe the other guy's like, the contractor and the three of you guys are like a perfect symbiotic team and you can do two times as much together three times as much together you can do nine deals together as opposed to you be struggling through doing one by yourself or three by yourself to have the same amount of volume and let's not also forget that doing things by yourself is boring as hell like real estate's already hard enough fighting you know fighting the tenants and fighting the contractors and going in and fighting the actual physical issues in the property and all the other crap you gotta deal with it sucks Having a team behind you, having you know people on your side that you can work together and brainstorm and solve the problems, it's just a lot more fun. So I will say this, if all other things are equal, doing nine deals with your three friends uh, is probably a lot more fun than doing three deals by yourself. And if you had just one partner, let's say, doing six deals with a partner is a lot more fun than doing three by yourself. Um, but they're, you know, they can be financially equivalent. So that's something you gotta think about and say, hey, like, um, does, basically the question is, does each of those other two partners bring some value to the table? Do they bring something that is worthwhile? And that comes back to the pyramid of what value is in real estate. And it's the money, the deal, and the management, and then the doing of the work, right? So that's the three things. If, if you're a management person, let's say you have a third, third partner there, that their plan is to like outsource everything to a construction company and hire out a property manager, that guy might not be bringing any value at all. You don't even need him, right? But if he's an active contractor and he's there every day swinging the hammer, he's bringing active value every day and he's managing all the tenants or whatever and he's placing them all, he might be doing a lot more. That contractor guy might be doing a ton of value and he might be totally worth splitting a, you know, a third of the profit or whatever with him, right? So it just depends on the configuration of who's bringing what to the deal and the actual deal itself. Is there enough gravy there to do it? But yeah, can you make money flipping? 100%, you can make good money flipping. Um, enough to live off of. Think like one crappy flip is like 50 grand, right? That's what I kind of look at as like a, a minimum standard. So you're making 50 grand on a flip and you did even two or three flips by yourself, that's 100, 150 grand a year. You can do one flip a year super passively and make 20 to 50,000 even if you aren't very good at it. If you're really bad at it, you could lose money. So that's the other thing I think about with flipping and just be careful. This market has been super forgiving to those who suck at flipping because the market just keeps rising. Buy anything and you make money. But that isn't, well, with how much money they've been printing lately, 
it, it might be actually a, a continual thing for the next few years. But I do think we shouldn't rely on that. We shouldn't have a, uh, a business plan built around something we can't control, which is the market. Uh, we should be going with business plan assuming the market's flat, right? And then if it appreciates, bonus. Yeah, that we to enjoy the fruits of our labors uh, to a fuller extent. If we mess up, we have to be forgiven. You know, that's how the market works when it appreciates like it has. Okay, next question. Hey Mike, appreciate you always providing value and insight and time and answering my questions and I am in a predicament. Darren and I will look for your question further down. I have a house that is owned in cash. I'm looking at refinancing 80% of the equity out. My partner's name is on title and he's having difficulty getting approved from an A lender. So this is the part I, I need to figure out here. So you guys are on title together, so you get approved together. I don't know how he could have a hard time getting qualified and you're gonna get approved because if you guys go together, you'd probably get approved. Um, I, I'm just trying to understand first off because the way you go through approval when you're both on title is you both qualify together. So hopefully you and him together could qualify. But I'll keep reading your, your uh, question here. Should I go on title also so we can get the money out? Oh, I see. I misunderstood. Um, it's owned in cash, but it's in their name only, I guess. Um, not your, both on title. I understand now. So should you go on title so we get the money out? Will there be implications for this in the future? So Darren, um, it depends. If you had set up a joint venture partnership agreement, which I assume you probably did when you bought the property, you're already sharing in say, let's say you did a 50-50 joint venture partnership. You're already sharing in half of the profits. So from a tax perspective, you already own half of all the profit in the property, right? So when he trans if he puts you on half on title, you can make the argument, I've always owned half the whole time. I put up half the money, I just wasn't on title. Here's our JV agreement, here's our trust agreement, whatever. Have the lawyers you know, do it up. So there shouldn't be any implication really for adding you to title from a tax perspective. You may have some legal fees to do it. There might be some land transfer tax. I've seen it where you can show a bare trust agreement to uh, the land registry people and say, hey, look, I, this person has been holding my half of title in trust for me. There should be no land, land transfer tax. We already paid that once together. In which case, there would be probably no land transfer tax too. So it's possible you get added on if you did your paperwork properly um, to the property with no implication at all. In which case, you get access to the capital and away you go. You don't own property in cash unless it was a flip. Like you just don't. You want to pull your money out. Owning property in cash is a terrible proposition. A return on rental income perspective, you're looking at five, six, seven percent a year, super low. Appreciation again, like three, four percent probably on your cash. If you're levered, it's five times that return. So yeah, get that money out. If you can't refinance the money out, sell the property. Owning real estate in cash makes no sense. If you have tons of equity in your property, you gotta get it out. It just doesn't, it's not a strong asset class owned in cash. I'd rather go buy blue chip companies. They'll produce better than, than real estate in my opinion. Real estate's attractive because we can borrow at 2% or 1.6% against it, 20% down, five to one, right, levered. So that's where I think there's a lot of value. But if you don't have that, that cheap debt, amplifying your, uh, your overall return, I think real estate isn't attractive enough for the amount of work that it is, for the amount of stress and work and risk, because there's quite a bit of risk in real estate, right? People don't, they talk about it being a safe asset class, but like there's a ton of risk owning real estate. There are you know, regulatory risks. There are um, municipal zoning risks. There are tenant risks that burn your house down or something, right? And your insurance might not cover it. There's risk the tenant won't pay rent. There's risk utilities go up faster than your, your rent. There's just so much risk in real estate. And I think the risk is manageable. 
But only in cash, just not enough. It's not sweet enough, not tasty enough for me to want to sink my teeth into it without that, that leverage. That's just my personal opinion when it comes to investing in real estate. But yeah, I think that maybe there's a way you could recraft their situation or talk to a B lender to get them to you know, get a mortgage. This person will hold title for you. Or maybe there's a way to add you on title and it has no implication. Uh, one, let's just say that you weren't, didn't have a trust agreement. You didn't have a JV, you nothing. Like it was just a handshake. You could go on 1% on title. I've seen a lot of people do this. They'll put their uncle on 1%, their parents on 1%. So you, they'll own 99% and then their parents, uncle, you know, friend who works at Amazon, whatever, like whoever, you know, the, your friend is the doctor, whatever, like, the, you know, someone who's got money, you can qualify, you put them on 1% and they, the income goes in entirely to qualify. So it's the same if they own 1% to a mortgage company as if they owned 99%. There's no difference. They don't look at the split. They just see that person's on title and now all their income gets thrown in to help you qualify. So pro tip, sell 1% of your property off to someone who can help you qualify and boom, now you can qualify um, for whatever mortgages you want. So there's a lot of cool things you can do. I used to, I actually sold, I have a couple of properties where we sold like 10, 20% of the property for a cheap mortgage and it worked out cheaper. So for me to give away 10% of the entire property for free, I think in one case we gave, we gave 8% of the property away for free. So 8% of all profit, whatever happened, 8% for free, all they had to do was just sign the dotted line for the mortgage. So they, they brought the financing, right? They brought all that money in. It, would, it was actually cheaper to pay them 8% of the profit than it was to get a 10% profit mortgage. So again, if you're giving like half of profit away or 25% for someone to bring the financing, that might not be worthwhile, but it can be worthwhile to find a partner and say, hey, you do nothing, you bring no money, you just sign the dotted line. You allow, allow your income to help me qualify so we can qualify together for this property. And I will give you some amount of financial incentive. That is how most JVs come together is you say, hey, I want you to do this and this is the compensation and you agree on terms. But you can get super creative if you want to. Hey, uh, Andrew, how you doing? Um, hi, my couple as well. Thank you, Elliot. All is well. How do you keep yourself accountable to your goals? Good question. I'm extremely hard. I'm a perfectionist. I'm extremely hard on myself. I'm extremely hard on, on every situation. It's just the way that I am. I'm sitting up at two in the morning thinking about how the window didn't get installed properly and the siding is just bummy. Like, Everyone cuts corners and I am like super attentive to detail. It's one of my strong suits in real estate. I think you need to be attentive to detail. Too many people aren't. They'll walk through a unit and be like, this is good. And like, it's not good. There's tons of issues everywhere. And attention to detail is how you succeed at the highest level in real estate. And so attention, that attention to detail and that pickiness and that need to be perfect, that drive has allowed me to succeed and keep accountable in all of my goal setting, right? I'll go back and be like, I failed in this goal. It's going to eat me up and I'll be laying in bed at night thinking I failed on this fake means nothing goal that I set for myself. I just didn't achieve my own, my own goals. And the worst, the worst thing actually is not when I um, don't achieve a goal. It's when I overachieve a goal and then I have no goal. So I got to set a new one. And that, that keeps happening to me recently where I overachieve goals that I had for myself. And then I'm just lawless for the rest of the year until I decide to get my ass in gear and set new goals. So it's, how do I keep accountable? For me, it's just like, I'm lying in bed at night thinking about all the projects and renovations and whatever's going on in my life. I'm thinking about all those goals and all those things I'm trying to achieve. And, and I just can't help myself. Like I just, I'm sitting there with my kids and I'm sitting there thinking about things I have to do. That's just me. I can't turn it off. I don't have that nothing box. Some guys have a nothing box they can go into. I don't, I'm just on. Um, I gotta force myself to do something like game or get in, 
sucked into a movie series to pull myself away from the distractions of, of work. So I'm just built different in that way, I guess. But yeah, I just, I don't know, I guess I'm afraid of failure, right? As a, as a kid, I, I needed to succeed in order to, to prove that, that I could rise out of poverty to, to have a better standard of living. So for me, that's been, you know, keeping myself accountable. Um, another thing is just looking at the goals. Like you got to go back and revisit, the, write the goals down first off. And I might have not stated that point, but if you're not writing down your goals, like how, if you don't write it down and measure it, it'll ne- you'll never make it. So you gotta, what doesn't get measured doesn't get made, right? It doesn't get achieved. So you gotta be writing down and measuring your goals and checking in often to see how you're achieving towards said goal. If you have no goals, you'll, you'll be a lot less successful in life. And I mean, it's more to life than success, but financially speaking, the most powerful thing you can do is set goals for yourself and then check in daily on what am I doing to achieve that goal? Like, hey, what are three things I did today to move forward towards the set goal, right? What are the five things I did today? If you did nothing today, you're like, oh shit, I did nothing today. Like, I'm way behind on where I need to be. And even that evening, you catch up. So that's just me. Um, I warm up too. Like, I'm, I'm the kind of guy who's a wallflower who sits there and then until someone pulls me in, and then once I'm pulled in, like, you can't get me to leave. So I'm, that's the same way with all my goals too. Like, I'll be sitting there procrastinating towards a goal. And then uh, once I get dragged in, I can't stop. I'll be up all night to achieve that goal. For me, it's just getting started. And so uh, I force myself to start. Typically in the morning with my phone, like I'll force people to contact me and drag me into the problems. And that's how I, part of how I achieve is I put myself in that situation to force myself out of my comfort zone. And then once I'm out of the comfort zone, I'm good. I can just motor. So yeah, it's finding what works for you, what works for your personality type, and then motivating yourself to achieve. Let's go for a rapid round. Let me find some questions here. Hi, Mike, I have a question. Got my first round of the Windsor. Should I rely on the property management company to get the tenant or should I find the tenant myself? What are the risks? Thanks. Um, property managers will never do as good of a job finding a tenant as you will. So just know that, accept that fact. If you want a really good tenant that's gonna be guaranteed paying well, et cetera, so forth, you're gonna to have to do the screening yourself. There is a hybrid version where you tell your property manager you have to have final sign off. And you can send your property manager 10 questions that you've developed around, you know, I have a sampling of 10 questions that I look for as an example around you know, what they do, their credit score, you know, pets, kids, all this kind of stuff. Just getting a full rounded picture of who the occupant is and that'll help you decide, are they a good fit for the unit? And that's what you want, it's a good fit. More important than the best tenant for the unit, the best tenant is the best tenant for the unit. Um, yeah, so I, uh, at my stage in the game, I hate placing tenants. I'm, I don't want to say I'm too far along in the journey, but I just feel like for me, it's better to outsource those things nowadays. So I try to outsource, but I try to micro a little bit the process in selecting the tenants. That's mostly how I do it nowadays. But yeah, I've had property managers sit on units for three months trying to rent them out because they got 50 units to rent. They're busy. They don't make it a priority. So I, I, do, uh, I do think that's something to worry about. It's a risk of outsourcing to property management for your first property is that you're gonna have a situation where, I mean, it might be a situation where you end up with a tenant that you don't want in the unit, or it might just sit vacant for three to four months because the manager doesn't get around to renting it out. Um, or they try to, but they don't get good enough showings and then they can't find the ideal candidate, whatever. They won't work as hard to find a good tenant for your unit as you will, because it's not their property. They just wanna get a commission. And if they get it, if it sits vacant for a month, there's no penalty for them, right? So that's something to think about for, uh, property manager. 
Next question is, is a seller's, in a seller's market, do you sell privately or calm free? Do you always use a realtor to sell your property? Well, first off, I am a realtor, so I'll always use a realtor to sell a property. Uh, no, you know what, it's funny, I am a realtor and I've still sold properties privately. Uh, there are situations where it can make sense to sell a property privately. Um, it's just less paperwork, it's easier from a realtor's perspective. Um, it can make sense if you have an investor who's interested, who wants to buy it, even if you get 10, $20,000 less, whatever, um, it can just make sense to sell privately still. But um, it depends on the terms too, right? Sometimes a quick close is more valuable than a long close, et cetera, so forth. Yeah, I think that in a seller's market, you should probably use a realtor and go on MLS. You will almost always get more, almost always. And I think that the comfrey approach versus the realtor approach, I think you'll get more with the realtor. They'll do a better job, more professional photos, they'll get the virtual walkthrough, do the eye guide tour with the floor plans that you can click through. That always fetches a higher price, that's key. Um, and yeah, just like some of that value in the seller's market, the mint properties, they go for way over asking. The, sh the like mediocre properties, they don't do as well. Uh, and then the really crappy properties for some reason right now go way over asking too, because all the renovators wanna get in there and burr and add value and whatever. And it's getting crazy where people aren't doing the numbers properly and they're saying the rental's gonna cost them 20 and then the actually gonna cost them 60. And they don't realize it, but they're overpaying for the property at the low end of the market. So there's a lot of that going on in hot markets. In cool markets, you won't see that happen, right? Only the top shelf products will go for decent prices. The middle tier products will, will do all right, they'll take longer to sell. And the low tier crap will be forever trying to move that because the market isn't hot and everyone isn't you know, a bullish speculator. So yeah, my, my thoughts is get it on the market. In Southwestern Ontario right now, you can get it on the MLS with proper marketing, proper presentation of your property, you get top, top dollar. And that is the best way to go. And then if that doesn't work, if you don't work publicly, then sell it privately, right? If you try on the MLS, give it a few weeks on MLS. If you've marketed properly, your property is sold. If it hasn't sold in three weeks on MLS, you've done something wrong, get it off and you can try and sell it privately, whatever. Um, can you sell a house staged or bare? You just did a follow-up question there, Raz. So I'm gonna pick it off early just because I see it right here. Um, you have a new build to sell. So a new build product is premium. So if you stage that, you will get that back for sure. Depends on the property. Some properties need to be staged, some properties don't. Sometimes it's worthwhile, sometimes it isn't. Most of the time, if it's a nice product property, it's worthwhile. Even some crappy products, like where you got nasty carpets, or like let's say like beat up hardwoods, you could throw out some really nice modern throw rugs, modern furniture, great pictures and everything, and then you, look, the room looks almost new. A nice TV in the wall, and you're like, oh, I didn't really notice that the wall was paneling before. And then when they unstage it, you're like, oh, this place is pretty bummy. Uh, but I've seen realtors transform bummy, like mid-tier type properties to make them look almost high tier because they put the ten, twenty thousand dollars in furniture that they rented and they stage the property. So staging can be huge. It's a lot of work, but it can be huge. And in many cases, realtors will throw it in. Or if you're, you know, if you pay an extra one percent, pay like four or five percent, then the realtor will throw in um, staging for sure, right? And they'll rent furniture and they'll stage it up really nice for you. I would look to that. You'll get a top dollar doing that. So big fan of staging. Super important, especially if you're targeting a family. If you're just an investment property. It isn't as, as valuable. It still helps, but um, mostly for the single family type um, property. The woman is walking through and like doing the, you know, should, would I live here test. That's, um, that's where it's really important to have the staging. I got a cue. As a new player trying to get into real estate market, how would I find the historic price of a house I'm interested in and the value of this increase? Go connect with a couple of realtors. They'll give you comps. They will tell you what's sold and what hasn't. There is some free um, 
Sigma House or whatever, you can look up some of the sale price data. Some of it still is, uh, is concealed, you can't see all of it. Sometimes they register and hide it, but a, a realtor will give you access to all of that. So buddy up if you're just new to the real estate game, buddy up with a couple of realtors and say, hey, like I'm looking to buy a property. Maybe say, hey, I'm looking to buy a property off market and on market. If you find something that's apocalyptic, call me. But if you find something on market that meets these criteria, call me. I am also looking off market. If I find a lead that doesn't make sense for me, I will give it to you and tell the realtor, hey, I'll, I'll pass you the lead. It's a house that's $10,000 on our market. Why don't you go sell it? And in return, you give me comps. And most realtors will say, yeah, if you're gonna feed me a lead, even if even the promise of a lead, they'll probably work for you and give you comparable, comparable uh, sales data. So there you go, there's a pro tip for just getting started in real estate. Uh, Mr. Michael, how's it going? Same question as always every week. I appreciate the consistency. It's going well, thank you for asking. You can always ask a question. You don't have to ask if you can ask, just ask. Uh, how do I get into real estate as a student or after studies? Depends what you mean by getting into real estate. You can become an agent, and in which case you would get into, um, you, you can start doing studying and going through the courses now. Um, oh, we've got a super chat come in. Whoa, ho, ho. Whoa, ho, ho. Kenton Claussen with a 34.99 super chat. That's what I'm talking about right there. Right there, thank you for supporting the channel and uh, it means a lot. So Super Chats always get priority and his question gets answered before the rest of the questions get answered. So Kenton has a building lot in Lucan, was planning to build a house and sell it, but I think I would have to hold two years for tax. Learn on your channel, I could have one or two properties. My lot is paid, no debt, and a weird housing market. You learned on my channel, you could have one or two properties. Hmm. I would like some clarity on that, what you're talking about. You're talking about selling the lot. Um, I didn't know about holding it for, for two years. I think you're talking about like you're trying to get a capital gain versus an active uh, tax clarification. I'm not sure 100% what you're talking about there, but the building lot sounds like it could make sense. I think the, the play there for the building lot, if you're going to build it, is probably live in it for 13 months after you've built it. Uh, because then it's your primary residence and that's all, I think it's tax free. I have to double check me on that, but let's say you live there for like a couple of years after, it's for sure your, your primary home. And so it's, you don't pay any tax. And so you could theoretically, you know, add some value to the property while you're living there and make all of that tax-free. So if you're gonna build, I think you should probably live in it, unless you're like an active builder, in which case, like I'm sure the CRA is gonna argue that's an active business for you. Uh, but if it's just one lot and you're in a situation where you could live in the property, I would and get a tax-free sale. Um, could I have down payments on a few rental properties instead of this one home? I'm under levered, I think. Yes, Kenton, good point. You are definitely under levered. Um, <laughs> Giannis is like, wow, I don't see your $35 super chat right now. Giannis is like, you want to get you want to get priority right now? Let's see that super chat. Um, yeah, I do think that you could definitely take, the, I don't know what the lot value is, but probably you have money there that you could bring to better work. That's the problem with land development in general. You guys remember on this channel I shared a while ago, I bought a, uh, a property that was that had deeded beach rights and it was a little over an acre and it just wasn't being utilized properly. The house was situated on a beautiful lot, but the plan here was to, we actually end up severing it into four quarter acre, um, like half million dollar uh, cottage type lots and the severance of the deeded beach rights went with each lot. So it was a, my first development project, right? I, we got to bring services in, got to get severed properly, uh, four lots, you know, rebuild the main house and then do the other three as well. And that was, the plan was to build on it actually and build, you know, $3 million houses. 
And uh, we ended up bailing on the build project because I ran the math and the time it takes, the money it takes compared to the margin, it just didn't make sense. So for me, who I, I wasn't a builder in the area, I was gonna have to pay premium to hire a builder to build for me. And this was out um, in Plimpton, Wyoming. So it was out between Sarnia and Grand Bend on the water on Lake Huron. And we decided just to, we, I severed it and we sold off, um, we sold off the four lots. One of them had a house on it. The other four, we just sold the lots. And I got, I don't remember, I wanna say like 150, 100. Bought it for like 400 something. I think our all-in costs, there was a lot of costs actually. It was surveying and holding costs for like almost two years that we held it. Um, all the fighting, all the drama, you know, the city to get it all approved. There was issues with drainage and there was just so many issues along the way going and playing developer that I don't think I have an interest to ever play developer again. Um, it's one of those things where it just, the amount of time it takes to get a return, there's no cash flow, you're just burning money for like two years while you wait for approval. And then you've got to give the city a whole bunch of money in, in a deposit so you can then bring services in and develop it, bring in your, you know, your gas, your hydro, your sewer, your water lines, whatever. You got to put a big deposit out, then you got to front the actual work and then they give you some of that credit back after you've done all the work. So it can be multiple, multiple six figures to develop a property and develop or a series of properties, right? It just, we ended up getting like on the surface, you're like, hey Mike, you made like, I don't even have the math in front of you, but between 900,000 and a million dollars on a property you bought for 400 something thousand. You're gonna think, Mike, you did two and a half times. Like you bought something for 400 something thousand, sold it for like almost a million. That's a great development project. And like, yeah, we made five or 600,000 gross, but then there's all the costs associated, right? There's interest financing costs, there's the utility costs, there's the property taxes for a couple of years. But the main thing is the opportunity cost. The cost of what my money could have been doing for me in a, real estate development or a, a rental property as opposed to real estate development project. And my thought is because development takes so long and building takes so long, it's a slow way to get a return. I'd rather turn my money, it's how many turns can you get on your money? How many times can you double it, right? How many times can you you know get your money back and invest it again? With a rental property, you could burn three to six months and then do another project, do another project. And so I have to say, was, was it worth doing like 10 flips to this one development? And the answer in this case was, no, I think I would have been better off doing a bunch of flips as opposed to doing this development project. We did well, like don't get me wrong, we made large six-figure profits. I did well as a developer, but to me, it wasn't worth the stress and the risk in, uh, working as a developer. And then we ended up bailing on the building idea. We redid the main house, it, it did it really nice and uh, sold that, but I, I, we didn't, did not end up building. It just didn't make sense. I ran the numbers and the margins are so slim on builds right now that Unless I was gonna own or occupy it, it didn't make sense. There wasn't enough margin there because there's a lot of tax associated with building something and just selling it, right? Um, so it just didn't make sense for, for our situation. But I think in your situation, if you can live in it, that's where it would make a lot of sense. Otherwise, I think maybe just sell it off. Say, hey, I got a great, like land is so valuable right now when there's so little of it that I think, Kenton, you can make a great profit on a property in, in um, Lucan. You could, I would even get some nice drawings done up and just show what could be there, like a nice big, whatever would fill in the lot, like max out the lot with the nicest house you could possibly find and get something designed, just some, you know, designs or whatever, put them in on the listing and just sell it like a builder does. And you'll get, I think because you're unique and there's not a lot, you're not competing against a bunch of builders in a subdivision, you get top dollar for that piece of property. Take that profit on that lot. If you can hold this lot for a good amount of time, there could be a huge opportunity there. So to, to exit Kenton and find, you know, you could put that money to work somewhere else. 
Uh, on a side note, when you're trying to lever up land, you can usually go 65% loan to value with most banks. I had a building lot in London, actually, back in 2017. And I sold it for like a 15% more than I bought it for after a year. And I actually lost money because I had financing costs and legal costs and taxes. And I had to maintain the grass and the lot. It's actually a beautiful piece of, piece of land. I wish I would have held it because I sold it. And then a year later, someone sold it for double. And it's actually it was actually right near off of, War, off of Warncliffe and Western Road near Oxford. I had a beautiful building lot. could build a nice duplex. It was before secondary dwelling units were really a thing. So I didn't think I was allowed to do duplex. And it just didn't make sense. I, but you could build a nice three-story walk up or something on that land. And I bought the land for 108,000 and I sold it for 115 or something. Or I bought it for like 105 and sold it for like 115 or something. I had to check, I can't remember. But uh, probably worth like 250,000 just for the land now or more. So, so many opportunities that I passed on back in the, or didn't pass on, but held the land and then just sold it because of that same issue. I had a lot of cash in it. Yeah, but back then I got a loan on it for 65% loan to value at a HELOC on the land. So you could do that as an option and pull some of your money out and just get like a HELOC on the property and then go buy a rental property, build the house, live in it, sell it in a couple of years after you've enjoyed it, completely tax-free, but build it with the thought of selling it in mind. Every decision you make is, hey, will this give me the reset value? Heated floors, maybe not. Um, you know, something custom that you like, not valuable for resale, right? So think about things, is this gonna add value for resale when you're building? A lot of people got sucked into the, like the fancy surround sound speakers. No one cares about speakers in your ceiling. Don't spend $5,000 on an upgrade. Builders try to sell this, these upgrades that no one cares about, that you don't get any more money for in the resale market. So just be smart when you build. That'd be my pro tips for you. Um, I did build a house actually too. We, we did a build with a builder in 2014 and I was very strategic about how I built. I set a, a record comp before I sold it before the appreciation happened. I sold it in, um, when I sold it, 2016, December, 2017, January, I sold it before London really appreciated. And I set the first ever comp in that area. Uh, we built it for 320. We lived in it for two years. And then in 2014, and then 2016, we put it for sale. 2017, it sold. So it would have been, uh, we sold it for 405. And I, I thought I was doing really good building for like, you know, under 320, sell it for over 400. Felt like I did really, really well. I was strategic about everything that I did there. I did renovate the basement too after it, uh, after it closed, after I owned it, I just added some value. But that was an example of like, we turned down a lot of upgrades because we knew they weren't gonna add value for resale. We did the, you know, the granite because that was important. We did the you know, stainless. I went and bought my own appliances. I didn't even get the builder's package. Went and got my own appliances on Black, uh, Black Friday, Boxing Day. And so I just try to save money wherever I could. Those are all tips. Um, hopefully that adds some value and helps your decision. I wish I had, um, yeah, I, w I wish I had more tips for you. I'm trying to think of what else I have, but I appreciate the super chat. Hopefully I added some value for you. It is a weird housing market that we're in. It's with COVID, you know, the demand for building lots right now and for country lots, like Lucan is flying off the shelf. People don't want to be in the downtown core anymore. They're afraid the next virus is going to come or like, you know, what's next after COVID? We're bioengineering this, this crap inside of labs. Something else is bound to get out. Biowarfare is the future of, of battle. And I think that it's going to be a future for economic resets. So we might see this again. And I think people are going to value being in the country more, especially with things like Elon Musk's super fast internet. Uh, that's going to break a lot of the barriers down as people learn to work from home now. And organizations accept that as the new norm. Yeah, I think that you could hold on to the lot and it will continue to be valuable. It is very valuable now in this market to sell uh, building lots. So just be creative in how you market it.
I'm not going to get through all these questions because I got to go up and do bedtime. Um, darn it. I want to get through all the questions. I like to get through all the questions, but it's tough when I get a super chat and super chat takes priority. So thank you for keeping my channel alive. I, I really only make revenue from the super chats these days. The ads, I get less than a penny of you. So you can imagine when this show gets 500 views, I make like less than five bucks. YouTube takes their cut. I make like four bucks. It's, I definitely not making a good, uh, good amount of money from it. I'll cherry pick two more questions. Chris is a great point. Yeah, I used to make formal videos. It might be a, a goal in 2021. Thank you for the comment, by the way. I'd like to bring back the videos like I used to do. Uh, it's just so much easier to just go live and just speak. I'm sure I could do pre-recorded small videos that would go viral, get a lot more views and help a lot more people. But there is the editing process and the thumbnail process and I just don't enjoy that. If I could find someone who would do that for me, like for like 20 bucks a video or something, I would pump videos out, right? Like it'd be worth it. If I could make a business case where like, all I do is just spend my time, pay somebody a little bit of editing and thumbnail and then put it up, it, it could make sense. But right now I don't have that easily available. It just doesn't make sense. And my time has been extremely um, limited lately. And with the third baby on the way, it's, um, it's gonna be even more limited in 2021. So I gotta squeeze out time. Uh, Gary has a great question I really want to use here. I'm going to pick this question. With inflation devaluing the dollar, would you recommend keeping a savings for a down payment in investments such as stocks or gold and silver, et cetera, as opposed to a savings account? So Gary, I think that um, one of the challenges with, so you're saying it's for down payment, I assume for a rental property. Maybe it's for your own primary residence. I guess it doesn't matter that much. But one thing you're going to have to look out for is if you keep it in crypto or in some other um, something the bank isn't going to look kindly on. When you go to buy a property, they want to see 90 days of that down payment sitting in your account and just being available. They don't want to see it on line of credit. They don't want to see it. Ideally, they don't want to see it inside of crypto or anything. They don't want to see it come into your account out of nowhere, right? So be careful where you store that because when you are looking to, to get approved, you're going to want to make sure to the A lender that you can show you have 90 days of that cash being in your account, not from borrowed sources, that it's your own money. That's important, so that's the first thing to consider. So if you're looking to buy a property soon, let's say in the next four months, it doesn't make sense to invest it. I know we're going through a deflationary period. I know the value of a dollar is you know, decreasing relative to what it could buy, especially in real estate. Um, some things in the consumer price index, your dollar could buy more of. As an example, tech. You can buy a lot more tech now than you ever could before. It's never been cheaper to buy you know, high quality computers, whatever. Um, cars even are not even going up that much in value. The average car price is actually going down. So some things are getting cheaper, but housing is just through the roof. The asset, like the solid appreciating assets are increasing like, like never before. Um, so that's something, like housing is really the biggest one that's it's going up like crazy. So um, if you measure wealth based on housing, we're getting a lot poorer. But if you measure it based on like cars and burgers and whatever people mostly spend money on, it's not getting that much more expensive for food. Like, yeah, anyway, that's just my little gripe about the inflation index and stuff. But anyhow... Um, what I will say is savings accounts pay terribly. There are savings account promotions that people set up where you get one or two or 3% promotional interest, which could make sense. Uh, it's better than nothing. At least you're, you're just kind of slowly growing to inflation. Um, stocks. I'm a big fan of buying blue chip dividend paying stocks. If you're saving for a down payment and it's a year or two out, definitely get into blue chip dividend paying stocks. Like I'm talking the big five banks in Canada. I'm talking 
utility companies like Enbridge that pay 78% dividends. I'm talking about you know companies like Chesswood Group. If you had bought that when I recommended it on the channel at $4, it's now at $9 a share, but it still pays a healthy, I think between six and 8% dividend annual. And you get appreciation on that too. Like forget appreciation. I, I think that the stock appreciation is not, capital appreciation is not the focus. You should be focusing on, on cash flow. Um, that's something that I would look for. Set in stop losses though. Because it's your down payment and you need this for, let's say your time horizon is a year or two from now, set in a stop loss that the stock falls more than say 7%, you cut your losses. Boom, auto sale. You can look at what else you're gonna put it in, but have stop losses set in whenever you buy whatever shares you're buying so you don't ride all the way down. Lock in your losses quick and then buy something else. Lock in your loss quick, buy something else. You don't want it such a tight band that it just sells instantly. You want about a five, eight percent play so that one down day doesn't force you into a, a stop loss sale. But stop losses are key to not losing your money. Put those in so you, you don't lose your whole down payment. And what you'll find is you'll be really good for the long term. Um, I'm, I'm way over. I gotta go up and five has some good cheap video editors. True. I think Canadian Tire Bank offers 1.8% around. I didn't know that there was a Canadian Tire Bank. So pro tip right there. Most of the big banks right now are offering um, something. Like I know Tangerine offers something. Um, there's a whole bunch of them that offer stuff. EQ Bank, EQ Bank Canada used to offer 3%. I don't know if they offer 2% now. Go check them out. Uh, I'll do this last question really quick and then that's it. The rest of them, Copy and paste your question now. You can still see it in the chat there. Save it on your, you know, wherever in your Word document. When I publish this video, put it in the comments and I promise I will get in there and I'll respond to each and every comment. Just get on the video, post it there for everyone to see and I'll answer it publicly. Don't, whoever, copy and paste it and send it to me on Instagram where no one can see the responses because I do a lot of those and they're a waste of time. I should be focused on putting them up publicly so if someone else has the same question as you, they can see the answer. Um, there you go. 1.8%. Uh, so that's a place you could park cash if you just wanted to keep it kind of growing. And a mar money market fund, you make 1% too. That's another idea. Um, has almost no downside risk. But I will read this last one. Assuming you liquidate your portfolio when you officially retire, would you personally change the investment type, single versus commercial apartments based on time frame? Example, 10 year versus 30 year. Um, so assuming I liquidate my portfolio, I don't think I'll ever fully liquidate my entire portfolio. I think I'll always have a few buildings. But I would like to be more hands-off. I like to pay for better management so I'm not as involved, right? Um, is there a preference between commercial and residential? I think commercial real estate doesn't perform well enough given the amount of risk right now. That's just my thought. Um, I prefer to have all of my, let's say, okay, I think having some real estate makes sense for deflationary risk. Because the market hyperinflates, you get 10, 20% appreciation like we're seeing and your money floats with it. So it's good to have some buildings. Um, that said, I think that from a pure cash flow perspective in retirement, I think that it's smarter to take the money you would have had in your rental property and just private lend it and a first or second mortgage at 12% interest or something and recycle that every six months or a year to a new person, You know, move it around to another flipper or whatever. And it's a bit of work, but I think if you hired a mortgage broker to do it for you, maybe get like a net net 10%, let's just say, net net 10. And that 10% that return is extremely passive, ex extremely safe. You're like 70, 80% loan to value on the real estate. You're safer than having your money in the down payment portion, right? So I think that the ultimate retirement plan is just to sell off most of the real estate portfolio and to just have passive income 
from a stock portfolio and from, from lending against real estate. So still invested in real estate, but you're secured as a mortgage lender. And if they default, you to sell the property and make a huge profit because there's 20, 30% in margin there. I think moving into the lender position is a better place to be from a risk perspective and a time management perspective. But you gotta be super, super wealthy to make that decision because uh, investing in real estate will make you wealthier quicker. Anyway, I've been here way too long, 65 minutes, and I started late today too, so my daughter's definitely gone to bed. I got the second one who will for sure still be, or the first one will still be up for sure, so I can get her into bed. But uh, thank you so much all for watching, everyone. Thank you for the super chat today. Save your question. If I didn't get to it, paste it in the comments on this video, and I promise I'll give you a response for everyone to see. Or, alternatively, if you don't want to post in the comments, you could save it for next week. I'll see you next week, live, 7 p.m. As you guys know, the secret to unlocking a wealthier you is three levers. Spend less, earn more, and maximize returns on the difference. That's it. That's a simple equation to becoming a multimillionaire, becoming super wealthy, and enjoying that early retirement fire lifestyle. Thank you all so much for watching. Uh, Elliot, I really appreciate that. Follow me on Instagram, at Mike Rosart. Send me a DM. Maybe there's something there that we could, we could do uh, some collaboration, you know, create some content. I could share you know, your, your socials, or if you don't want to be shared at all, that's cool too. Um, but yeah, maybe in 2021, there's some opportunities to collaborate there and, and trade some value for value. So... Thank you so much for reaching out. I'll see y'all on Instagram in my stories. We're getting like, I'm posting three to 10 times a day on Instagram in my Instagram stories. So if you want to follow along my journey and see what I'm up to, check me out at Mike Rosart on Instagram and I'll see y'all in the comments. See you next week. Live at 7 p.m. Eastern.